Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Well, good morning. My name is Joel, and welcome to Three Creeks. If you are here and you are the extended family of one of the children that was dedicated earlier, just a special welcome to you. We're so glad that you've jumped in here at Three Creeks with us this morning. You've heard the expression, it takes a village. And although we don't see you that often or you're not here that often, we just want you to know that we love your kids, and we know that you love these kids, and uh, we're excited about walking with them and helping them to grow to, as we say around here, to walk in the way of love and end up living others-oriented, Jesus-centered lives. We're excited about that. Thanks for being here. Uh, Before I get into today's message in Joshua chapter 5 and 6, I think it would be appropriate as a church family this morning to take about two or three minutes and pray for the nation of Israel. Lots going on. Feels like every time I look at my phone, there's something new to read and update. And um, there's no plot of land in the world that has been more hotly contested and sought and fought over than the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, which is where the nation of Israel is today. Since Israel was reestablished in 1948, there have been 14 wars or major military conflicts for that land. And it's no no coincidence. I may get into this a little bit more on a future Sunday. I don't have time today, but where a lot of what happened yesterday, that was 78 miles from where the city of Jericho was in the Bible. And, um, and so yesterday I was just kind of wrestling with, with what does this even mean spiritually? But, but at a minimum, uh, I'd love to pray for them. So would you just join me as I pray for Israel? Father, as we have watched the events in Israel unfold, we are at a loss for words. We can only imagine those in Israel and Palestine are experiencing so much violence, hurting, and fear today. So many lives have been lost. And we pray that you would protect those who are in the midst of this escalation of violence. We pray that you would protect people from harm. We pray that you would get families to safety, shield them with peace and protection. Although we do not know what will happen in the next few days, we lift up all those involved to you and trust that you will set everything right with your righteous hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're in week four of our series in Conquest. We talked week one about how Moses passed the baton to Joshua. We talked about Rahab, this inhabitant, this woman, this prostitute that lived in Jericho. Last week we talked about how the Israelites crossed the Jordan River and, and they're, they're right there. I mean, Jericho is the first city 
that they will have to conquer to, to do what God is asking them to do. And um, I dug a little bit deeper uh, this week than I usually do. I'm not sure if you can call it a documentary or not, but I watched VeggieTales, Josh and the Giant Wall. <laughs> they took some creative liberty. I don't read anything about purple slushies in the, uh, in the Bible, if you know, you know. Uh, I was watching it by myself, and uh, Morgan walked in. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, sermon prep here, honey, you know? And, uh, and about five minutes later, she goes, no, like, you're really watching all this? It's like, yes, I got to watch the walls fall down. I got to get to the end. Even if you haven't spent a ton of time in church, you, you've probably heard even there's cultural references to, you know, walking around the walls and the walls falling. Jericho, this fortress of a city coming down. Do you know what happened the night before they started walking around? Have you ever taken time to just read the last three or four verses of chapter five? Because, man, it is so important to understand what happens the night before. How Joshua gets the instructions is crucial to understanding this story. So if you would, I'm going to take you to Joshua chapter 5 first and read starting in verse 13, right at the end. It says, this is the night before. It says, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And this, to me, first begs the question, what is Joshua doing near Jericho? In fact, the Hebrew suggests that he's literally up against the wall, like at Jericho. And I don't know what he was doing. I don't know if he was looking for an easy entry point. Maybe he didn't have a plan yet. I'm just thinking to myself, why wouldn't you have sent somebody else? You're in charge. But apparently Joshua, the night before, can't sleep. And so he goes on a walk. To the walls of Jericho? Do you remember, though, that this is not the first time that our man Joshua has been to Jericho? Forty years earlier, and in the first message of this series that you can go back to listen to if you want to, Joshua was a young man. And Israel came just to the border of the promised land, and they wanted to go out and scout it and send some spies in, and so Moses picks 12 people, one of them being Joshua. And for 40 days, these scouts or these spies go into the land to look at it and go, you know, which cities are we going to have to conquer first? And what's the land like? And, and, and Moses says, bring back the full report. Well, the 12 guys go in there for 40 days. The 12 guys come back out. They gather the assembly around and the people say, how was it? 10 of them say, people are too big. Walls are too high too strong, there's no chance. But Joshua and Caleb, who surely would have gone to Jericho on that trip, said, no way. Yes, they're big. I'm not disagreeing with that part of what these other spies are saying, but God is bigger. We can do it. And rather than believing Joshua, they consider stoning him. They don't. But 40 years later, Joshua is there again. I just imagine that he's reminiscing of, of just thinking of everything that has happened for the last 40 years. Jericho was the strongest, most fortified city in Canaan. It wasn't the biggest city, but it was the strongest. The walls were so thick that you could ride two chariots side by side on top 
of the walls of Jericho. And 40 years later, he finds himself there again. And look what he sees. He sees a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. The Hebrew text says that that Joshua saw an ish, E-E-S-H, an ish, which can be translated warrior or champion. And the question I want to ask you is, what do you think you would have done if you were scouting out the enemy and an ish came up to you with a sword? A, A warrior, strong and mighty, strange and in the dark. Well, Joshua, your Old Testament Chuck Norris, goes over and challenges the man to a fight. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Are you for us or are you for our enemies? It's an either-or proposition. And the man says, Neither or no. The actual Hebrew word is L-O, lo. Most commonly translated, no. Joshua's like, what do you mean? I asked you, are you for us or are you for the enemies? No. In other words, Joshua, you are asking the wrong question. The question is not, am I on your side, Joshua? The question is, are you on my side? The success of this conquest is not going to be based on your military prowess, Joshua. It's not going to be based on your experience or your ability to rally your people. The success of this conquest is going to come down to whether or not you believe that I'm really in charge. Will you listen to me? This person is essentially saying, I am not a lieutenant in your army, Joshua. I am the general. I am in charge. The question is not, am I for you? It's, are you for me? And look what Joshua does. Joshua falls face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, what what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua knew what he was up against. The question should be asked, okay, who exactly is this strange, strong champion of a man in the dark with the sword? This new general who's commanding the army of the Lord. Could it be an angel? Well, the answer to that would be no. It can't be an angel because there are times in the Bible where humans are attempt to worship angels and angels go, No, 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 you have this completely wrong. We too are created beings. We are not to be worshipped. Get up off the ground. We worship God. You don't worship me. So it can't be an angel. In Revelation 22, this happens, and if you want to go read into that, you can. Joshua falls on his face in reverence, which is another word for worship, and the man doesn't say, Joshua, you have this wrong, get up. He says, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. It can't be an angel. So if it's not an angel, then who is this strange, strong being with the drawn, with the drawn sword? I want to share two points with you today. One of them is pretty theological, and then the other is pretty practical. We'll start with the theological 
and move to the practical. I believe that this is what theologians call a Christophany, which is an Old Testament pre-nativity appearance of God in human form. This is Jesus before he's born in a manger. Lots of passages in the New Testament talk about how Jesus has always existed. Jesus wasn't initially created in Mary's womb. He has always been, and he has always been the commander of the Lord's army. You see, this general that Joshua is encountering is the second person of the Trinity. And within the Godhead, there is one whose specialty is to come to us and be a channel between God and us. God is coming down in human form and he's going to deliver his people. Does that narrative sound familiar to you now that you know the whole story? God is going to come down in human form and be the deliverer for his people. You see, every story in the Old Testament, every one of them whispers the name of Jesus and what he will do for us in the New Testament. It's this foreshadowing of what's to come. Jesus meets Joshua here and says, I'm in charge. Will you follow me? Will you surrender? I've come to give you the victory. And in the same way, thousands of years later, God is once again going to come down in human form in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is on the same mission as this guy. I've come to deliver the people, not from the people of Jericho, from an enemy that is far more severe from the sins in your life. I've come to free you, to give you victory over that. And and, and this is not the only Christophany in the Old Testament. In fact, I read one a little bit earlier from Exodus chapter 3. And there are others where God comes in human form. And so we see here that this is holy general Jesus with a drawn sword demanding surrender. And when Joshua says, hey, you for us or you for them? He says, no, 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 no. That's the wrong question. Are you for me? Well, this is what the Lord says to Joshua then. He says, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. Don't lose how bizarre this is. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. I mean, Joshua wants to prove himself. He wants to come back and say, this is the plan, guys. And this this is what God's asking him to do. When you hear them sound a long blast, on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. And then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. These instructions are odd at best. They are amped for a fight. Joshua is eager to prove himself and the Lord gives them these bizarre instructions. Put the ark in front of you, let the priests carry it. Day one through six, walk around the city. On day seven, walk around the city seven times. And once you get to the end, have the people blow the horns and then you guys scream and that's it. Imagine if this happened in a football game. Ryan Day comes in the locker room. Guys, second half, no plays. We are going to hold hands. 
we are going to sing away in a manger and see what happens. <laughs> I mean, it really is that bizarre when Joshua has to relay this plan to his team. I've tried to imagine what it would be like for the guys to come home. You know, after the first day, his wife's like, hey, so how was it? He's like, uh, good. Who'd you walk next to, you know? It's like, Bill, why, you know? And she's like, so like, you know, how's Bill? And what'd you guys do? And he says, I, I mean, I guess this was like a vision trip or something. We just walked around the city. Okay, you know. Day two, husband comes home. She's like, okay, what's the update? Glad you're alive. Did you get the bad guys? No, we just walked around the city again. People are taunting them. Every time Joshua begins to doubt, and I'm sure he did, he wants to change the plan. He remembers who the general is and that God's way is the best way. Here, here's the practical point that I, I just want to ask you to consider this morning. How do you see God in your life? Are, are, you, are you living in a way... I mean, I'll break this down for you in a second. I'll, I'll try to make it a little bit more clear. Are you living in a way that is essentially asking God, like, hey, are you for me? Because the answer to that would be no. Are you for me? That's the way that God would respond to that kind of life. And so, so it begs the question, like, how do you see God in your life? Do you see him as a general or as a friendly lieutenant? Most of us tend to relate to God like a faithful lieutenant, somebody who can influence us, guide us, comfort us, take care of us, help us through tough times, and most of all, most of all, escort us to a safe place after death so we don't have to be afraid. We see this at funerals. Everybody assumes God is on their side at a funeral. If you were to walk through a graveyard, it's astounding the number of tombstones that have a Bible verse or something about God or angels because at death, everybody thinks that God is on their side, but it would be a stretch to say that, you know, confidently, I can, I can assume that all these people lived their lives for God. And it's not that God doesn't want to do some of those things in our lives. He does want to bless us and take care of us. But he does also come and actually comes first as the Lord demanding surrender. He comes as the Lord Jesus Christ. If you invited me to your house and I came up and, and rang the doorbell or knocked on the door and you opened the door and you said, Joel, come on in, trainer, stay out. I would be very confused. Because I'm all Joel and I'm all trainer. And so I wouldn't really know what to do in that situation. And at times, sometimes we're like that with Jesus. We try to divide him up. We say we want like helpful, friendly, take me to heaven Jesus. But we go general demanding surrender Jesus. I don't know if I want that one. 
and we divide Jesus up like a salad bar. And that just must be so confusing to him. He's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. It's kind of how Lord works. Jesus didn't come to be a part of our lives. He came to take the whole thing over. So, so it begs the question, is there any area of your life that you just, man, maybe you believe in Jesus, but this area, you won't let God touch it. Is there an area of your life that you've been unwilling to trust God with? Maybe it's a habit that makes you happy, some sexual activity that is socially acceptable, the way you think about your kids, your plans for the future, the places you spend your money. Is there an area that you go, yeah, okay, I'm into Jesus, especially when he forgives my sins, but that part, I'm going to keep that to the side. I don't want him to be the Lord of that part. See, uh, God had a very, turns out, great plan for Joshua. And I'm sure that Joshua, through the process, had his doubts. I'm sure that he would have wished that it had gone another way. It certainly would have instilled a little bit more confidence in his team if God had made a more logical plan. But Joshua follows through, totally surrendered, believing that God's way was going to be the best way. And as it turns out, the plan works. This is what verse 20 says. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. And everyone charged straight in. And they took the city. God's plan worked out. And the people are not amazed at how strong they are, but they're amazed at how strong God is. That was the reason that God set it up this way in the first place. I'm trying to imagine, as I read this story, how the Israelites must have felt on day three, on day four, on day six. It actually doesn't even say that Joshua told them all of the instructions, the whole plan. It, it, it's, it's possible that he just said, march. And fully surrendered, they said, okay. But as the days went on, I'm just imagining them coming home every day. How was it, honey? I don't know what to tell you. We just walked again. It just, I don't, I don't know how this thing's going to turn out. We just walked again. While they were marching, it doesn't say that the bricks began to rattle. Day five, there was a little bit of, ooh, Heard a little bit of something there. Heard a crack. There's nothing. There's no sign that God's going to do anything. There was this, this, this faithful, through it all, total surrender march with no hints of progress along the way. Because what God wanted to do through them was not as important as what he wanted to do in them. He wanted to work on their hearts as they walked around the city. He wanted them to be less focused on the outcome and more focused on obedience. It is God's responsibility, no matter what we're talking about, no matter what area that was that you just thought about, the outcome is God's deal. Obedience is our deal. It's our deal. It can be so challenging to follow through 
to faithfully obey God when it doesn't seem like anything is happening or anything is changing. But that is the space. Hear me, friends. When we're faithful, when the bricks aren't proverbially rattling, when we do the right thing no matter what, that is where faith in Jesus, faith in God is verified. That is real, authentic faith when our obedience is not dependent on what we want the outcome to be. When we read this, when we spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ that point us to the way that God wants us to live, and we say, no matter what, I will do that, even if it doesn't come back to me like I want it to, that is where faith in God is verified. So in our marriages, or in our friendships, or with our children, or with our money, or in our prayers, by confessing sin, by sharing our faith, when we do these things with uncertain outcomes, that is where faith is verified. But, but if you're anything like me, let's just be honest here. Let's be honest. When I begin to feel like I need to change something, do something different, obey God in a new way, oftentimes in my heart there's this, this better work out. Like you better, if I do this, you know what I mean? Like if I become more emotionally available and say no to some stuff and spend more time serving my family, this better, it's, my obedience is a little contingent on what's maybe coming back to me. I wrote down some questions that you, or some thoughts that maybe you might have. What, what if I have a hard conversation that I've been avoiding that I know I'm supposed to have and it doesn't go well? What if I make a financial contribution or a pledge to the well and a year from now we're still standing here and we don't have a well yet? What if I pray and I pray and I pray and I pray and nothing happens? What if I confess my sin? What if I'm honest for the first time, but rather than feeling free and forgiven, I just feel judged and like people are looking at me different now? What if I, what if I share my faith? What if, I, what if I risk it a little bit and I say, hey, where are you at with God, with somebody that I work with or I work out with? What if I do that and I'm, I'm just immediately rejected and I feel embarrassed? When, when we have these thoughts, when we ask these questions, what we are essentially doing is saying, God, are you for me? Okay, I'm going to do this, but this better work out for me. Because when our obedience is dependent on what we think the outcome should be, that's us asking, God, are you for me? And if we ask that question, we will be met with, no, 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 no. Are you for me? Will you trust me on this one? I have a few questions to end. I'll ask them slow enough that maybe you could think about it as I ask them. Are you for him? Are you wholly surrendered to his way? Are you willing to do the right thing that honors God no matter what? Has every area been given to him? 
which area is the hardest for you to trust God with? Do you really believe his way is the best way? Will you surrender and give him a chance to prove it to you? We give him a chance. Will you obey no matter what and give him a chance to prove that he's not out to get you? He's out to set you free and give you life and life to the full. Will you give him a chance to show you that, especially with that one area? Will you surrender? Let me pray for you. Father, as we sing this last song and as we, as we just process some of this, as we drive home, as we sit on the couch this afternoon or in our bed tonight and we contemplate what is the area that we won't let you touch, would you help us to just be really honest about that? Would you help us to sit there long enough to think about it? Lord, would you help our unbelief? Because as that, as that area comes to my mind, I just want to grab it and hold on to it and do it my way. But on principle, I believe that your way is the best way. And so God, would you give me the honesty to see it and then the humility to let go of it, the courage to surrender it, and give you a chance to show me you're not out to get me. But you love me. And your way is the best way. Father, I pray for our church as we go from here today that this wouldn't just be another Sunday. But rather, God, a moment that, that things turn and things change. And we stop asking the question, God, are you for me? But rather, God, that we would answer the question, yes. God, we are for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com.